Money. You can't really get through life without it. Some people use it to define success. Others use it to attain freedom. Whatever your motivation, you need to know how to earn it, how to use it, and how to grow it. At Tilly Money, our aim is to build the financial strength of women. And this season, we're taking it to the next level by empowering you with practical wealth building tips and strategies to help you become financially independent. From money to beauty to health stories, we're also going to be talking to women about the inspirational journeys they have taken to motivate you on your path towards success in all areas of your life. This is Tilly Money. Caroline Jean-Baptiste, love that name, is a mortgage broker and award-winning mortgage choice franchisee. Caroline is the author of Buy That House, How Kick-Ass Women Make It Happen. And she is here today to answer your home loan and mortgage broker-related questions. Caroline, welcome to Tilly Money. Thank you, Maureen. So good to have you here. Before we kick off with questions from our subscribers, Caroline, tell us a little bit about you and how you established yourself in the mortgage broking industry. Go for it. Well, Maureen, I um, came home after working overseas for quite a few years um, with a 20% deposit to buy a house. And I went uh, to my local bank and they told me that I didn't qualify for a loan. So I, was, I felt so much shame and embarrassment thinking, who was I to ever think that I could get a home loan? So I went overseas again, came back five years later and discovered there was such a thing as mortgage brokers. And one morning I was actually watching morning TV while working, um, working shift work and I, I saw a mortgage broker come on. And at the time I was looking for a business to get involved in and I watched it with this mortgage broker who'd, who'd made a massive donation for charity and I thought, wow, this is, this is an amazing business that you can help so many people, not only in just the home loan sense, but also in a sense of charity as well. And I thought, I don't want anyone to walk into a branch and feel what I did when I went for my first home loan. And so is I wanted the basis, to help. Was the basis of their rejection, because 20% deposit, that's a good deposit. I know. Was it because you'd been away and hadn't had a track record of saving or you hadn't you know, establish yourself back in Australia. I mean, to be rejected on a 20% deposit, that was a bit of a whack for you. Mm. Oh, absolutely. I felt terrible. Mm. And the reason was because I was working overseas and this uh, particular branch manager didn't believe that he could use my income. And had I known about mortgage brokers at the time, I would have just gone straight Straight to a mortgage broker and got into... Yeah, got into the market five years earlier. Yes. But, you know, I was, my confidence was really knocked. As a first home buyer, I didn't have that confidence. And, you know, the, the um, mortgage brokers weren't as widely available then. Um, but, you know, I just, I wanted to, uh, you know, help more people get into homes and not actually feel that. So when the opportunity to um, get into mortgage choice came up and I hadn't had a home loan before, I needed, um, needed a franchise model to help me into the industry and, and grow the business and, you know, help in the background. So uh, I got in and um, I've, yeah, I've built a business since then and I'm really happy. I love doing it. Well, good on you and trying to look at the positive in everything, even though, Caroline, what happened to you with that rejection 
um, that when you came back from overseas, but at the same time, it's opened up a career path um, and a business for you. So in a way, it's kind of turned out to be something where you're sitting as a franchisee of mm-hmm. Mortgage Choice. Is that right? That's right. Okay. Yeah. So you run a Mortgage Choice business, a Mortgage Choice mortgage broken business. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's get into these questions. We'll come back again to you later because I'm sure there's a lot of interest thing stuff to um, to delve out of. That might be the subject of a separate podcast. But we, our focus today is to um, ask you for answers to these questions that um, our subscribers have sent in. So first up, Caroline, why should I use a mortgage broker? And I, I think you're going to know the answer to this one <laughs> rather than go straight to the bank. Well, you've had firsthand experience, you've just told us. Well, that's exactly right. But it's, I mean, it's not everybody's experience if they go direct. But the benefit of going to a broker is we actually have a responsibility to educate our customers just to make sure that their best interests are kept top of mind whenever we're recommending something. So we have 27 lenders on our panel. And the great thing is that we can compare the same things across two different lenders. Whereas if you go to the bank, they just have their own products. Um, So we educate people as to the jargon that the lenders use. We educate them as to whether they uh, should consider a fixed or a variable. And we compare across a number of different lenders whenever we're making a recommendation. So when you come to a broker, you get a lot more choice, a much wider range. And also, that we, if you don't qualify for one lender, we can make sure that there is another option for you with a different lender. And we're going to make sure that we do keep your best interests top of mind. So a mortgage broker has on their panel, as you said, a variety of lenders. So you said 27. So not only would you have the big banks, but you've got a whole lot of other non-bank lenders, smaller bank lenders. And so are you saying that you would look at a customer or a client's circumstances and try and fit the very best loan to their circumstances rather than rather than just say, I'm a bank and here's my loan? you you're looking at a loan from you're 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 unbiased in a way is that is that correct yes you could say that so where our panel is made up of tier one tier two and tier three lenders uh-huh. tier one lenders being the big lenders you probably would have all heard about yep tier two are generally your state-based and online lenders and then we've got the tier three lenders being our specialist lenders who uh, cater for people who don't generally fit other lenders policies so the difference across most lenders, or the biggest difference, is not only rate, it is policy. So some lenders, say for example, um, might be happy to accept short-term employment, whereas other lenders might want to see longer term in their employment. Or some lenders will, for example, the first home loan deposit scheme. There's only a small panel of lenders that the government has agreed can offer the first home loan okay. deposit scheme. Mm, I which didn't know that. Mm. Yeah, and so not every single lender will offer it. So if you walk into one of the bigger lenders, one of the big four, and they don't offer it, you might be missing an opportunity to save a lot of money. So coming to a broker, it means that you can get advice on different lenders' policy rather than trying to trawl through the internet, building up your knowledge base and then confusing knowledge or sorry, information with knowledge. So you can get a lot of information online. There's loads of it out there. And but trying to figure out what's best for you 
is a minefield. It's really confusing. And if you get the wrong loan up front, it could cost you a lot of money over the term of that loan. So actually figuring out what is going to be the best thing for you, your situation and your plans for the future really needs the help of an expert. And mortgage brokers are experts in lending. They often own their own businesses. So they're more motivated to help and they're going to be there for the long term. They're not going to be shifted from branch to branch. They're going to be there for the long term and you're going to be their customer for life. So let's say, for example, after your fixed rate, you would likely get a call from the broker or you certainly would get one from us and to say, hey, it's time to review your loan and make sure that your rate remains competitive. You're unlikely to get a call from a bank directly to say, hey, we think you're paying too much. It's time to review your home loan. Let's get you on a lower rate. So that's, the, that's another benefit of going with a broker. So you're talking about a relationship when you enter. Absolutely. When you enter um, this situation where you use a broker, mm. probably more than you would a bank, you're talking about a relationship where someone's thinking about you and not just the first loan that you enter into, but even changes that may be to your benefit if, as you say, there's a better rate, uh, rate of interest or if there's a better deal with a fixed loan, the broker is actually thinking about their client. Is that correct? Absolutely. The difference is that these brokers, uh, you're their client for life and they care. They genuinely care and they generally show that they care um, by staying in touch with you. And so let's say, for example, um, I could see a client who might need a little bit of education around how to use their equity. And they might have never thought of becoming a property investor or they might never have thought about what they can do with this equity in their home, we can educate them around what their options are or we can refer them to one of our uh, business partners who might be able to educate them around financial planning or something like that. So when I look at somebody's financial situation, it isn't only the mortgage that we're looking at. We're looking at what is going to be best for them in the long term and how they can um, best use what they've got to make it work for them and put them in a great position further on. Mm. Well, I've always had a broker and I agree with you there. It is a relationship and I trust mum, the broker we use, because we've known this person for some time now and they don't pester us all the time. Um, but every now and then they do what you say, you know, we get the phone call about potentially a better rate um, that's out there, not necessarily trying to switch us, but just even a better rate on our existing loan with our existing provider. Um, and the other thing that they're conscious of is uh, they're conscious of fixed term rates and, you know, mm. whether or not we should be moving in and out of things like that. So I'll give you a big tick there, Caroline. And uh, <laughs> so moving on to the next question, um, what is the home loan application process? Is this something that a broker, because most of us don't like filling out paperwork, um, it can be difficult. Is this something that a broker does? And what, what, is, what is the loan application process in the first place? And if I'm if I'm um, form phobic, does a broker help me with things like this too? Absolutely, Maureen. We want to make the process as easy and pain-free as possible for uh, our customer. 
So uh, there are a couple of options. You can fill in a form if you like, uh, or uh, we can do it for you. That's what I do. So the home loan application process, in a nutshell, is essentially you sit down with your broker, either face-to-face or over Zoom, and you discuss the situation. The broker at that time would likely um, fill in the forms themselves, get all the necessary information, um, update the assets, liabilities, talk about the income that you can use, and then make a recommendation based on what they're looking to get out of it. Now, once the recommendation is made, then we have a, um, a responsibility to show the compares- comparisons and support our recommendation. Um, once uh, we've made a recommendation um, based on the evidence, we'll, you will need to provide bank statements, um, pay slips, and evidence to support your income and liabilities. Um, but we package that up and we make it as easy as, easy as possible. So providing links and things like that to access your bank statements. So if you are form phobic and feel overwhelmed with providing all this information, we provide all the uh, things available to make it as easy as possible for you. But it's our responsibility to package up a loan and present it to the lender in the best light possible so that it has the best chance of being approved. So it needs to be a quality application and that's working together as a team to provide the information and um, everything like that. So once the application is submitted to the lender, we make sure it tracks along at the right pace and update the client every two to three business days. And we work through that until settlement. And then after settlement, it's an annual review to make sure that you are getting the best um, the best rate or for, the, for your situation. So Caroline, there is no need for me as the potential borrower to ever meet the lender. You're, the broker acts as the intermediary and I really then can sit back and wait for my broker to call me and say, you've got it, you've got the loan. Is that is that really how it works? I mean, obviously I'd want to know about who the lender is, you know, and of your panel would of 27 lenders, for example, that you mentioned earlier, they would all the due diligence would be done to make sure that they are, you know, lenders of, of um, note and, you know, and uh, responsible lenders. But at the yeah. end of the day, I should get that call and you say, yes, you know, the keys are to the place are, are yours or you can go out shopping now for a, a place. <laughs> you become, exactly, you're the intermediary. Yeah. Hmm. That's exactly right. Yeah, well, we would only recommend, um, well, the, the lenders we recommend are heavily vetted because to get on our panel, they need to pass a certain process and meet certain criteria. So the lenders that we recommend, you would be able to have confidence that that they are reputable lenders who are going to be around for the long term. Um, We also need to provide uh, information about the lender and about the product that we are recommending. So um, when it comes to sitting back and waiting for the phone call, Thank goodness that you don't uh, have to sit there um, suffering the anxiety that comes along with the process as well, because we do keep you updated regularly as to what the, what stage the application is at with the process. We manage that as the middleman to make sure that it's moving along at the right pace. So that is right. You only we you speak to us, and we make sure that it's moving along at the right uh, pace with the bank. Today's episode is brought to you by our principal partner, Mortgage Choice. For almost 30 years, Mortgage Choice and its national network of mortgage brokers 
have been helping Australians just like you realise their property ownership goals. They put your best interests as their top priority because they work for you, not lenders. Whether you are looking to buy your first home or investment property, or want to refinance an existing home loan to get a better deal, let a mortgage choice broker answer all your questions, show you what's available and do the legwork for you. Visit mortgagechoice.com.au or call 13 77 62 to speak to your local broker today. So the next question was, what information do I need to really give a broker or if I was going to go through the painstaking task of doing it myself? And I think you mentioned that kind of thing. You'd have wage slips. Can you repeat for us what kind of things that I need to give my broker or to present to a lender in order to qualify for a loan? Sure. So it is uh, your identification. We need to be able to identify you. So um, driver's licence, passport, Medicare card, Uh, evidence of your income. So however you get your income, if you're self-employed, we need two years full personal tax returns and notice of assessment. Uh, If you are uh, employed, we need two of your most recent pay slips and maybe your income statement, which Uh, This sort of stuff may easily be able to be downloaded from MyGov and we direct you to where you can get it. So what you need for your application and to meet a broker is evidence of your income and evidence of your liabilities. And we can make an assessment based on that information. Okay. Okay. So if I was using a broker, you give me a list of all the things that I need. I go and hunt for down for them, give them to you. And then that process then goes, is something for you to do to submit to the bank. We have a question here, great. We have a question here from one of our subscribers. She's 24 and she says she literally has no idea where to start um, because she'd like to buy a first home but what holds her back is she's got no idea of where to start. That's a pretty typical problem. Now this brings it back to a younger Caroline who, you know, landed in Sydney or Brisbane or or wherever and uh, had a 20% tucked in as a deposit, still didn't get the loan. This question says... How do I know I've saved enough for a deposit? It's probably something on your mind when you thought, how much do I have to save? More than 20%. And our subscriber says, I want to buy a place. I like the idea of saving more for a bigger deposit, so I pay less. You know, my mortgage isn't as big. But how much do I need? Away away with the answer then, Caroline. Well, the very first thing that you, that anybody needs to do is sit down and understand their numbers. They really need to get intimate with uh, how much they need to save. And for each person, each first home buyer, each upgrader, it's a different amount. So for some people, let's say, for example, under the first home loan deposit scheme, they only need 5% genuine savings. And by genuine, I mean they've saved it up over a period of time. They haven't just sold an asset. But in some cases, um, that might that might work as well. So... I would say, sit down, the very first thing you do, don't worry about saving up, sit down with your broker and put a plan in place. Because then you can play with numbers. It's a great opportunity to sit down and say, right, so what if I, what if I waited another year and saved up this much more? How much of a difference would it make? Because when you look at, so I actually posted recently on LinkedIn about um, the cost of waiting. So, Many years ago, I met with somebody who had also saved up a 20% deposit and she'd been doing it for about, uh, must have been about nine years or something because she started pretty young. And when she bought her place, it was 
uh, she had a 20% deposit and it was great. And she'd ended up um, buying another property and subdividing and, you know, just being more active in the property market. But I did say to her on her second loan, I said, did, did you ever think that, um, or do you ever regret waiting to save that 20% deposit instead of going into the market when you had a 10% deposit? And she says, absolutely. So the difference of um, getting into the property market earlier and paying that mortgage insurance would have made to her would mean that she would have got into the market earlier and being able to uh, being in a market that's growing when you do the numbers it's it's going to return a lot more than just simply paying mortgage insurance mortgage insurance is a tool to get people into the market earlier it's not the devil mortgage insurance could come into play if say someone had less than a required deposit is that right that then they may have to take out mortgage insurance until their the amount they owned of a place reached a certain percentage that it was kind of like they eventually owned 20% of the house is that right kind so of. mortgage insurance is kind of like a protection until your equity gets big enough maybe i haven't well, explained that well but you're the expert mm. <laughs> well, it's actually a little, a little bit different, Maureen. Mm -hmm. So mortgage insurance, and possibly one of the reasons that it gets a little bit of a bad rap or people uh, believe it's, um, it's not a great tool, is that mortgage insurance is a premium that is added on to the loan mm -hmm. if you borrow more than 80% of the value right. of the property. Mm -hmm. So you now, deposit more. Well, yeah, it, mm. mortgage insurance does not cover the consumer. It mm. covers the bank. Oh, right. Mm. Okay. So it does not cover the consumer in mm -hmm. any way. Mm. But let's say, for example, uh, at the moment, the Brisbane market, in February, it grew 1.5%. Uh -huh. And across Australia, similar sort of figures um, of growth across Australia. And in the last 12 months, it's grown 5.2%. Uh -huh. If you pay 600000 for a property right now, in one more year for the exact same property, you're going to be paying 631000 On that basis that it's rising 5%. For the same property. Yeah. So if you wait and save up another $30,000 or whatever you need to save to get to that 20%, you're going to be losing it in equity, which is the value of the property, and you're also probably going to be paying another $30,000 in rent for that year. So just by delaying the decision, you are $60,000 out of pocket and potentially mortgage insurance may cost you up to $15,000, for example. Maybe twenty, but it depends on the value of the property you're purchasing. So when you think you're $60,000 out of pocket if you wait another year or you can be $20,000 out of pocket right now just to get into the market earlier. You know, it's, a, it's a, probably a decision you need to think about whether you wait to save up more. So you can get into the property market now with a 5% deposit plus cost. Mm. It's funny when you're saying that. I remember someone who's big in the Sydney property market. I won't, won't say their name, but um, they have this line that says, when people ask them all the time, when's the best time to buy property? And uh, he's got two answers to this. He said, well, the best time to buy property, 
10 years ago? And when's the <laughs> next best time today? You know, so if you missed yeah. out buying 10 years ago, and that's what you're saying, because there's over, over a period, there's rapid rises. There can be falls, but there's rapid rises in the market. So you could lose out. And when you remember property, you're in it for the long term. You know, for the rises and falls, if you panic with a fall, you're really only going to be affected by it if you sell the property. But if, if you always remember it's in it for on. the long term, mm-hmm. yeah, you, you're you'll going be, you'll to be the generally winner. win in the end. Yeah, you'll be yeah. the winner. Okay, another question for um, from our first home buyer or potential first home buyer, a little bit different this time. It's I want to buy a first home, my first home, but can you tell me what help or what incentives are out there to help me get into the market? There is loads available for first home buyers at the moment. There's five things off the top of my mind that I can think of right now. So as a first home buyer, if you buy under a certain value, there is the first home stamp duty concession. Mm -hmm. In Queensland, it's a full waiver up to $500,000. So you don't pay any stamp duty if you buy up to $500,000. And it's similar in other states with varying purchase or varying caps on the purchase price. And Caroline, just, just because a lot of our listeners are very new to the whole world of finance, Stamp duty. Stamp duty mm-hmm. is? It's a government or state-based mm-hmm. fee uh, or duty mm-hmm. that is that applies to the purchase of a home yep. in most states. Yep, okay. So, so that's, a, a, that's something that a person who's buying a property has to pay and it goes straight to the, the government um, uh, as a tax or a duty, as you said. Okay, thanks. Yep. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. There's a couple of other fees, um, government fees associated like transfer duty where it's the cost of transferring the property from the previous owner to your name Mm -hmm. and that depends on the purchase price Mm -hmm. and then a registration and release of mortgage. So that's just uh, like a a couple of hundred dollars uh, for the bank to register the mortgage on the title. Mm -hmm. So they're just little things. Um, But getting back to the incentives available for first-time buyers, there's the stamp duty concession. So that means that if you're buying your first property, you don't have to pay stamp duty or you have a concessionary rate. Yeah, yeah. So if you want to buy a place up to a certain price, you could be exempt from stamp duty. But of course, if you want to buy a $4 million bungalow, um, maybe you might have to pay some duty, some stamp duty. Mm. Definitely. I can tell you $4 million is not the cap. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, the next uh, one is the first homeowner's grant, which is um, applicable to brand new homes uh, and up to $15,000. So when you build a home or buy a brand new property, you get $15,000 and you can contribute it to the purchase or you can take it as cash. Then recently, there's the first home loan deposit scheme, which uh, if you buy a brand new property up to a certain value, again, uh, the government covers the, the lender's mortgage insurance. So basically you don't pay any LMI or lender's mortgage insurance up to a certain value. There are certain criteria that you need to meet as with any grant or concession, uh, but that's another one. There's also the first home super saver scheme, which uh, if you, from July 2017, if you have made additional contributions to your superannuation fund over and above the minimum of being of 9.5%, this amount becomes available for you to take from your super 
to put towards a deposit on your first home. And the fifth one, more recently, which is just due to expire in a few more days, is the Home Builder Program. So that's an additional $15,000 more in regional areas if you buy a brand new or buy brand new or build. Okay. So there's so, a lot of things going on for first home buyers. Yeah, there's certainly um, there are. Going back to the super one, so that one means that I've got a job and every year part of my salary goes out. Let's say it's $8,000 goes out in super. My employer puts that into whatever my designated super fund is. I'm allowed to put up to $25,000 into super every year. So I couldn't take out that $8,000 that I have to put in. That's my 9.5%. But just Mm -hmm. say I might have got a small inheritance or a bit of a windfall. And for the last three years, I've been tucking away an extra $10,000 into my super. I could take out that three years of $10,000. They're my contributions. They're not my compulsory contributions, but my optional contributions. And that could give me a $30,000 deposit. Is that right? That's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's so something first, to look at. Look at Because when you're young, you've got a lot of time, hopefully, to put that back into super because super is important. But if they were my voluntary contributions, you know, I could use those to put into another asset like a home. Well, that's exactly right. And when it comes to getting into the property market sooner. So uh, quite often people in government jobs or um, similar have a compulsory additional superannuation contribution that they have so that their employer can make up make it up to 12% or something like that. So, so it, it might just be happening in the background with additional superannuation contributions through your employer and it might be a lovely little surprise actually, which uh, a client of mine found that they had an extra $13,000 that they could contribute. And what that did was bring their mortgage insurance premium down and get them into a slightly higher price bracket because they had an increased deposit. So there might be a little surprise for some people in their superannuation. And you can get a determination by logging on to um, the ATO and going to FHSSS or First Home Super Saver Scheme. It's easily found on Google or in the internet. Or if you're smart enough to use a broker, that's probably something that if you were a first home buyer, a broker would go through all these kind of incentives um, like the super one and like the other ones that you mentioned. They'd be things that mm. you could just say, uh, rather than me ask you, your broker would say, well, look, you are a first home buyer. Let me tell you these four or five incentives. That's an additional plus because a lot of people don't know those things are out there. Yeah, that's right. Okay. Next question, Caroline. There's kind of a rule that says that out of your income, whether you're paying rent or you're paying a mortgage, you shouldn't spend more than 30% of your salary on that rent or those mortgage repayments. What do you think of that? And are there any exemptions to this rule? Look, it's a good rule of thumb, but of course, with all rules, they're a little bit flexible. And I think that uh, depending on your stage in life, really, and your budget and your lifestyle really should determine how much uh, you can afford to repay on your home loan and how much you want to stretch yourself. Because if your repayments are higher and if you go to your maximum borrowing capacity, um, there's a few things that you need to consider what your lifestyle is. So there's obviously, uh, you can't have both an extravagant lifestyle and a fancy home if you're only earning a certain amount. 
So it also depends on where you are in your life. So let's say, for example, um, you're at the beginning of your career and you, are, you know you're definitely going to move up the ladder very quickly. So really stretching yourself at the beginning uh, when you know you're going to get pay rises or uh, bonuses or commissions or things like that, it might be a great idea to stretch yourself in the beginning so you can get into the market at a higher price, but ultimately you don't want to be contributing too much of your income long-term because it means that you can't live the lifestyle that you potentially want. So there's more than more than that rule of thumb to consider because when we make an application to a, a lender, we do need to consider your living expenses. And if you spend a lot on lifestyle, it is going to impact your borrowing capacity. So whilst the rule of thumb of 30% is a good thing to work towards, it comes down to everybody's individual circumstances. So true. It's kind of what I'm hearing is live within your means, but don't underestimate your means either or your potential to really earn income. You mentioned then about um, people's extravagant lifestyle and spending patterns. So here's another question. What red flags do you look for when examining spending habits and bank statements? Things must really, particularly bank statements and credit cards and things like that, things must really stick out then, do, do they, in terms of people's spending habits? Yeah, look, um, it is quite an invasive process at the moment where banks look through your spending accounts, your salary accounts, your credit card spending, and they want to match up the living expenses that you've declared with what you're actually spending in your accounts. Now, red flags, big red flags are when you're overdrawn. Banks do not like when you're overdrawn or there's dishonoured payments or late payments on your credit cards. Being intimate with your credit history is also really important. So doing a credit check before you make an application to the bank will show what the bank sees. And the bank sees two years of conduct on your accounts because it just comes up um, on your credit history nowadays. So it's your credit card. If you paid your credit card late 30 days, this happened to a very high earning client of mine the other day actually, where um, they had consistently paid their credit card 30 days late for about five months and the wife owned up to that and it was just that they just you know there's a lot of money going yeah. through their house so mm. they just didn't really think it was important mm. but mm. it, it meant that they could they didn't have as wide a range of lending mm. options as they could have could have if they had a perfect credit history so behave yourself Absolutely. <laughs> I'm, kind of, I'm thinking too, and I mentioned to you earlier before we went on air that um, for many years I published the magazine for the mortgage and finance industry and most brokers are members of a professional body, um, you know, that uh, governs their ethics and behaviour and sets down things. So good brokers are always members of those bo- bodies. But um, I learned a fair bit about brokers and one thing I've found from mortgage brokers in particular, and you've touched on it in many ways, um, is that they almost, particularly for young borrowers, they almost became like a mentor for them as well, you know, that even when it came down to giving them advice about budgeting or watching their credit, um, you know, um, history or, you know, not getting those, you know, marks against their name. Do you find that kind of thing, a good relationship with a broker offers those kind of things as well with a good broker? Mm. Definitely, definitely. So for all my first home buyers, I actually send out a copy of my book 
because you can't often tell them everything that they need to know in a one-hour conversation. So it's important for people to understand exactly how to manage their money. And often first-time buyers have not had their, this level of guidance from their family or, uh, or any other mentor that they may have had in their life. So it's important to have that relationship with the broker as early on as you possibly can. Don't wait until you're ready to go when you've got your deposit all together because a broker can look and say, okay, well, you just need to tweak here and tweak there and maybe reduce this credit card limit or cancel that credit card. Or if you've got a default on your credit history, uh, because a lot of young people, they may have mismanaged their money and you don't want it to affect them for their life. If they can get in early as possible to the market and understand what being a good mortgage holder is or a responsible money manager is, it'll set them up for life and, you know, as a broker, we, we like to keep them on track. Mm, that's a very important thing to do. And that book, I, I like the name, so I'm going to say it again. Buy That House, How Kick-Ass Women Make It Happen by Caroline Jean-Baptiste. It's been great talking to you and I'm going to um, ask you as we close now, Caroline, just one last thing. What's your best tip for somebody? It doesn't have to be a first-home buyer, but for anyone that wants to engage in property. There, I put Ooh, you on the spot, haven't I? Tip, yeah. My best tip would be get in now. Mm-hmm. Good. Get in now. There you've heard it from the woman who wrote that book, How Kick-Ass Women Make It Happen. Not for one minute suggesting that you're one of those kick-ass women, Caroline, but you certainly know a lot about, about broking and lending, and I thank you very much for the time you've spent with us today on Tilly Money. Great talking to you. Thank you, Maureen. Your host this week was Maureen Jordan. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. To keep up to date with all of our content, follow us on Instagram at tilly.money. Thanks to Ixon for our intro music. <laughs>